In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus, or sorry, John lays out the significance for us of the Advent. He lays out what is the significance of the first Christmas. And this is what he says there in Gospel of John chapter 1 verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as the only son of the father full of grace and truth. When that first cry was heard in the stable of Bethlehem, as Mary and Joseph held in their hands that blood-covered, wrinkled, newborn baby for the first time, it was at that moment that the universe reached its turning point. For the first time, the God and Creator of all things, who before could be, be, could be heard, now for the first time He could be seen, for the first time He could be touched. All that God is occupied human flesh, and now he was approachable. He was available. He was even vulnerable. It's in the person of Jesus Christ that we see that God is not just calling us to assent to some theories. He's not just calling us to accept some ideas. He's not just calling us to believe some dogmas and principles. He is calling us to himself as a person. That is what it means that God became a man. He is calling us into a relationship with him as a person. The Gospel of John is different than the three other Gospels we have in our Bibles uh, in, in a number of ways. It has a different style. It has a different focus. One of the ways that it's different is that John's Gospel zooms in on some encounters that Jesus had with individual people. And that's important because through the stories of these encounters, the, the core teachings and the personality of Jesus are revealed in a particular way in a compelling way the title of today's sermon is the insider and the outcast the insider and the outcast in John chapters 3 and 4 we read about two people who encounter Jesus and in chapter 3 we read about an insider a highly moral very political insider he was a leader prominent he was a prominent person in the society politically and religiously in chapter 4 of John's gospel we read about a woman who was a social outcast she was morally and spiritually bankrupt these are two well-known stories actually the one's the story of the woman at the well the other's the story of Nicodemus but what's interesting about these two stories is that um, when most people read them they read them as two separate stories Jesus did this and Jesus did that rather than considering these stories together but I think that what I'd like to show you today is that these stories are meant to be read together we only get the focus, we only get the full weight of what is being said in these two stories if we play them off of each other. Uh, because what we have in these two stories, as, as I would like to show you today, is we have two people who could not possibly be any different. Two situations, two circumstances that are completely opposite in every way possible. The one is a man, the other a woman. Of course, you know that that uh, difference was way bigger at, those time, at that time 2,000 years ago. The one is wealthy, the other is poor. The one is moral, the other is immoral. The one was important and influential in society. He was a somebody. The other 
She was marginalized. She was unimportant. She was, by all means, a nobody. The one was considered ethnically superior. The other considered ethnically inferior. The one is a religious person who has a knowledge of the Bible. The other is neither religious nor does she have knowledge about the Bible. The one meets Jesus in the cool of the night. The other meets Jesus in the heat of the day. The one meets Jesus in secret. The other meets Jesus out in the open. The one is, he is the one who seeks Jesus out and she is the one who is sought out by Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? These two stories are polar opposites in every way that we can think of. These two people appear on the surface to be so different And the circumstances of their lives seem to be so separate from each other that at first glance it seems that they could not possibly have anything to do with each other, anything in common. These two stories are so different. How can they have anything to do with one another? And that is the exact point. The point of putting these two stories so different, butted up against each other, backed up to one another. Here it makes us ask the question, and here's the question. As different as the insider and the outcast are, what is it that they have in common? Everything's different. Do they have anything in common? And here's why. Because if these two people, the most different people on the face of the earth, if they have something in common, then guess what? That means that we all have something in common. So let's look at the outcast's encounter with Jesus first. If you would please turn with me to chapter 4 of John's Gospel. And I'm going to read from verse 3. It says this in verse 3, that Jesus left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Okay, Israel was divided, and I mean still basically is, but especially in those times, it was divided into three regions. You had Judea in the south, right? This is where you have cities like Jerusalem and Bethlehem. They're in the south. In the north, you had the region of Galilee. This is places like Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, Capernaum, which Jesus refers to as his hometown. And in the middle of Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, you have Samaria in the middle. Now, when a Jew uh, wanted to go from Judea to uh, Galilee, which, you know, these were the two main places where Jewish populations lived. There's a lot of travel back and forth. The most direct route to travel between the two regions was to travel through Samaria. But no self-respecting Jew would travel through Samaria. Instead, what they would do is that they would go into what's now modern-day Jordan. They would cross the river Jordan, and and they would travel up through that country, which is now Jordan, and that's how they would get between the north and the south. They did not like to go through Samaria. Now, why is that? Because the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. They hated each other's guts. And it was, it was fairly one-sided. I mean, it wasn't totally one-sided, but it was mostly the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. They thought they were half-breeds, the good-for-nothing. It's kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? They've just got this feud going on for centuries and generations. If you were a Jew in that day and you wanted to insult somebody, right? You wanted to really, you know, let them have it. You would call them a Samaritan. People are like, hey, that's uncalled for. You know what I mean? Don't call me a Samaritan. It's like a curse word in those days, right? It's an insult. And the reason for this was because in 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded Israel from the north. And what they did is that they carried off most of the population to Assyria. They did leave some people behind. 
And of course, because they're trying to lay claim to that territory, they, they transplanted people from Assyria into northern Israel, central Israel, really. And, uh, and what happened is those Assyrians from Assyria married together with the Jews who did not get carried off into captivity. And the result was the Samaritans. They were an ethnic group, which is actually still found in the West Bank today. I just looked them up yesterday. I did some research. There's roughly 700 Samaritans left, and they're, they're very active and very proud of their Samaritan heritage. But the, the Jews considered the Samaritans to be half-breeds. They were uh, mixed race ethnically. They were considered at that time especially ethnically inferior. And for this reason, the Jews banned the Samaritans from worshiping in the temple in Jerusalem. They said, you guys can't participate in this because you're half-breeds, you're mixed, you're not purebreds like us. The Samaritans responded to this by building their own temple, which they built on a mountain in Samaria, which is called Mount Gerizim. Now, the, the Samaritans said that they still believed in the Pentateuch, right? That's the first five books of the Bible, right? Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Moses. They still accepted these as, you know, God's word, but they tweaked them a little bit, right? They changed a lot of the stories. Uh, in their version, for example, the Garden of Eden was on top of Mount Gerizim. Uh, Noah's Ark landed on guess what? Mount Gerizim. Uh, here's another one. Abraham offers up his son as a sacrifice. Where else? Mount Gerizim. So Jesus, uh, he, here's Jesus, and he needs to travel from Jerusalem up to the region of Galilee. And rather than go the way that most religious uh, Samaritan-hating Jewish people would go, uh, Jesus makes a statement by traveling through Samaria instead. Now, this is a very important statement that Jesus is making. It's very significant. And it's actually something that Jesus does on a number of occasions. Um, he essentially is saying, I don't hate these people that you hate. I don't avoid these people that you avoid. I don't accept your customs as okay just because that's your custom is pretty much what he's saying he does this on a number of occasions maybe you remember that there was a Phoenician woman who came to Jesus maybe you remember a time that Jesus traveled up to Tyre right these are areas outside of Israel these were people who by the Israel Israelite population were considered you know um Good for nothing, really, right? Fuel for the flames of hell. And, and here's what Jesus is doing. And again, that's something that for a lot of us, we read the Bible and we read these place names and they don't stick out to us that much because it might as well all just say Timbuktu, right? We don't know where any of these places are. But people in that day, they read this and you know what they're saying? They're saying, Jesus did what? Jesus went where? That is scandalous, and that is a very important thing. You're talking about encountering Jesus. That is a very important factor about who Jesus was that you realize when you read about these encounters with Jesus. That Jesus was a scandalous figure. He challenged the status quo of his day. So here's Jesus, the embodiment of God, right? And he intentionally, purposefully travels through Samaria. And what he's telling them is, I am not going to avoid these people who you avoid. I am not going to hate these people who you hate. I'm going to go and I'm going to walk right through their land. And if I engage them, if they talk to me, then I'm going to talk to them. See, one of the problems that the Jews had throughout their history is that although they were called 
by God to be a light to the nations. They were called to lead the nations to the knowledge of the one true God. Instead, they did just the opposite of that. They got self-righteous about the fact that God had chosen them. They were the chosen people and they felt good about that, you know. And, and another thing they did is they isolated themselves because you know why? They were afraid of all those bad people out there defiling them, right? Or corrupting them in some way, you know, or messing up their faith or something. And there are a lot of Christians who, who fall into this exact same pattern. Rather than being missionally minded, we can become self-righteous. This is actually what Christians are somewhat known for, unfortunately, right? Self-righteous, isolationist. Uh, rather than befriending people who think differently than we do, there can be a tendency among some Christians to just avoid those people. Make a big loop around them, right? Go across the river, across the street, so that we don't have to meet those people. Jesus said this. He said, no one lights a lamp and then hides it under a basket. Rather, they put it on a stand so that it can give light to the whole house. You know, Jesus, when you look at him, what you see is a man on a mission. He was a person who was missionally minded. And to be a follower of Jesus, that is intrinsic to it. It's part of the nature of what it means to follow Jesus. It means to be missionally minded as he was missionally minded. It means walking straight through Samaria, a place that everybody else avoids because maybe, just maybe, God has an appointment for you there in Samaria. So you walk through whatever that Samaria is for you. You walk through there and as you go, you keep your eyes open and you ask the Lord, God, where do you want to use me here? How do you want to speak through me in this place? Let's continue reading from verse 5 in chapter 4. So Jesus came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now the sixth hour is noon. This is the hottest part of the day. You've got to remember this is Samaria. This is the Middle East. It's an arid climate. You're right on the edge of the desert. The sun is beating down. Jesus has been walking from Jerusalem. And he's weary. And he's tired. And he's thirsty. In verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So it's noon, right? It's hot out. And here comes this woman all by herself in the heat of the day to draw water from the well. Now, for most of us, we say, okay, and. But here's the thing. You got to stop here. This is not normal. This is not normal for a woman to draw water from the well alone in the middle of the day. In that culture, women would, uh, would, would go to the well in the morning and they would go in groups. They would go when it was cold out and they would go with the other women from town uh, and they would help each other get water. So you have to see here that for people in this day, as like the first readers of the Bible, right? They're reading this and they say, okay, this woman comes out at noon to get water all by herself. That's a red flag, right? Something's not right here. And they wondered, what is this woman doing all by herself 
in the middle of the day. Now the reason this woman is by herself, and we're going to see that become very clear in just a second, the reason is because she is a moral outcast, right? You know, like scarlet letter type of letter on your shirt, nobody talks to you type of moral outcast. Even in her own society, she's an outsider. Even in the, amongst the Samaritans who everybody else looks down on, they look down on her. She's not accepted. And that's why she's at the well all by herself in the middle of the day because she is not welcome to go to the well with the other ladies. So what does Jesus do? Well, he strikes up a conversation with her, right? Everybody else in this society snubs this woman, but Jesus befriends her. Jesus deliberately reaches across all of these barriers that people have erected to divide themselves over, right? And he befriends this Samaritan woman with this sordid past. This is radical. You have to see that. It's scandalous. Absolutely. God became a man and dwelt among us. And here he is, here is Jesus, revealing to us the heart of God by being a friend to the outcast. You know, I wonder, do you, do you ever wonder, how can I be used by God to make a difference in this world for the gospel? How can I really be used effectively to make a difference in the world for the gospel? Well, I'll tell you one very effective way but I'll tell you, first of all, it's not glorious. In fact, uh, it will not make you look good in other people's eyes. You will not get any recognition for it. It will be messy, but it is effective. You ready? Here's what it is. Befriend people. That's what Jesus is doing here. Befriend people. Befriend those people who nobody else wants anything to do with. Befriend people who are different than you. Not in a condescending way, because you can do it that way too, like, I'm going to be your friend. You're welcome, you know, congratulations. I'm doing you a favor, because I can see you don't got any other friends. I'm just going to, you know, condescend to your level, and I'll be your friend, and I'll talk to you, and I'll do you a big favor. No, don't do it. Like, for real, truly, actually, seriously, befriend people. Be concerned about them, care about them, love them, and here's why. Because that is what God did for you in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? That is what God did for you. That is the gospel. He came and he sought you out. Not because he thought that you would make his image better. No, not at all. He sought you out in spite of who you were, in spite of where you were at. He befriended you and he brought you in. That is the gospel. So many people are concerned with how it will affect their image if they hang out with people who are beneath them, right? Jesus was not at all worried about that. We see that here. He wasn't worried about being seen in public with this woman who was obviously a social outcast. You see, that is what it means to be missionally minded. That is what it means to be gospel-centered. It means crossing barriers. It means befriending people out of love for those people because of the mission and because of the heart of God. Let's continue reading from verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come to draw. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. So here's Jesus. He meets this woman for the first time, and although he is friendly when he talks to her, he's kind, he's open, he also confronts her, but he confronts her in a very roundabout way, in a very sly way, really, right? He speaks about this living water, and then he explains to her that living water is actually just a metaphor for eternal life, right? So 2,000 years ago in Samaria, right, they're on the edge of the desert, Middle East, arid climate. They knew a lot more about thirst than most of us ever will because we have so much access to, to you know, clean drinking water. Our bodies actually contain so much water that when you become seriously dehydrated, right, like you're starting to die of thirst, what happens is that your entire body starts to ache. Your whole body, right? Muscles cramp up, everything hurts inside, and it's agonizing. So to taste water after having been truly thirsty, right, coming to the point of death in your thirst, it would have been one of the most satisfying experiences you could possibly have. So here's Jesus. It's hot out. It's the middle of the day. The sun's beating down, and he's telling this woman, I can give you something that is so basic and necessary for you, for you spiritually as water is to your body physically, something without which you're done, you're lost, you're a goner. But think about this metaphor of water again. Now water, it not only sustains life, right? It not only satisfies you deeply, but here's the other thing about water. It does all of these things from the inside, right? He does it from the inside, and Jesus says that. He said, I'll make it spring up from within you, right? This is different than a splash of water on the face to refresh you. This is refreshment. This is life-giving from the inside out, You know, most people, if you would ask them, what is it that you need? Like, what would you need in life to be truly happy? To be able to say, I am satisfied. I'm fulfilled. I am truly happy. I need nothing else. What would you need? What is that thing for you? Most people would answer by telling you something which is outside of them, right? Something outside, meaning uh, most people would say something like, I need a particular kind of relationship. I need a particular kind of family situation. I need a particular kind of financial status. Uh, I need a career that I'm successful in, right? All of these are outside factors, outside things. And that's the point here, that most people's hope is set on things which are outside of them. You know, it's the thing that they look at and say, if I could only have that, then I would be satisfied. If only I could attain that, then I would have enough. 
For this, re- for this woman, the reason Jesus starts talking about the men in her life is because this woman has been looking for that satisfaction. The outside thing that she's doing and using is relationships with men. She's gone from one man to the next, seeking love, seeking security, probably seeking acceptance and attention, probably by sleeping with men. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying there is nothing inside of you, or there's nothing outside of you, there's nothing on the outside that you could possibly have that could satisfy the thirst which is deep down inside of you. There's nothing outside that could do that. The problem, the real issue is not outside. The real problem is inside of you. You're trying to solve it with things outside of you, but the issue, the root is inside of you. You know, a few days ago we had Thanksgiving, or as I like to call it nowadays, I like to call it Black Friday Eve, you know? I figure uh, Black Friday is just going to slowly eclipse Thanksgiving until people are like, oh, hey, when is Thanksgiving? They'll be like, oh, you know, it's, uh, it's, the, day af- or it's the day before Black Friday. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Now I know when Thanksgiving is, right? People are going to start getting like days off from work. They'll get like two days off. They'll get Black Friday Eve and Black Friday. And the reason why we'll eat turkey and stuffing on Thursday is so that we can load up, right? So we have enough energy from all that meat and, and carbohydrates so we can go out to Walmart and just like fight our way through like we're in a mosh pit you know, so we can save a few bucks on stuff we don't need, right? This is our new national pastime. You know, so many people were were posting online about how America, right, America is the only country where people take a day off to give thanks for everything they have, and then the next day they go out and fight each other so they can get some more, right? But but I got to tell you this, uh, that consumerism and materialism these are not American problems. And I know that because we have a Hungarian guy living with us and he loves Black Friday, right? No, I'm just saying, consumerism and materialism are not American problems, they are human problems, okay? Let me just say this, consumerism and materialism are not American problems, these are human problems. And, and here's why, the, the reason is, the reason we're never ever satisfied, right? is because every person in the whole world has the same basic problem. Remember what I said at the beginning? What do these two people have in common? Because if they have something in common, then we all have something in common. That's the point. Well, here is what I'm getting at. People are never, ever satisfied, and here's why. No matter what country you live in, no matter how much money you have, nobody's satisfied, and here's why. Because we all have the same basic problem, and it is an inner problem. It is a spiritual problem, and people try to solve that problem in different ways in different cultures. Here in America, we like to solve it. We like to try to solve it by buying stuff, right? The Samaritan woman at the well... The way she tried to do it was with relationships with men. But no matter how many husbands and boyfriends she had, and no matter how many discounted flat screen TVs you wrestle out of the hands of complete strangers on Black Friday, no matter if you're successful in your career beyond your wildest dreams, it will never quench the thirst which is inside of your soul. It's not possible because those are all outside things and the problem is not outside. The problem is inside. That's what Jesus is telling this woman. You know, there are, there are people, you know, celebrities, for example, who have reached or even exceeded their hopes and dreams in whatever field they're in only to discover that they've been climbing and fighting, climbing this mountain and when they get to the top, 
There's nothing there. It didn't satisfy their inner thirst in the slightest. And many, many people, like some of you here might say, oh, those poor rock stars, oh, poor TV, movie star, whatever, the poor millionaires, they've got problems, right? They're feeling unfulfilled. Well, I'd like to change places with them. I'll go feel unfulfilled so they can have my debt and my problems, right? I'd rather have their problems than mine. But here's the point that Jesus is making, that your problems and their problems, they're the same thing. They're the same basic problem. We all have the same fundamental problem. It is a soul problem. Most of us, like the woman at the well, we will continue holding on to the hope that if we can just get that thing which we think that we need, that we think that we have to get in order to be satisfied and happy, that perfect relationship, that financial security, that recognition, that achievement, then we hold on to this hope that then we will be fulfilled and satisfied. And so we carry on as we do. But what Jesus is telling this woman is this. You've been trying and it's not working. And that's because the problem is not outward. It's an inward problem. And a splash of water on your face will not give you the deep-seated satisfaction that you need in your soul. Right? It's an inward problem. It's an inward problem. You have a problem in the core of your being. What you really need is eternal life. And Jesus says, I can give you that if you will ask it from me. Jesus brings up the men in her life, right? She has this sordid history with, she's been married five times. She's living with this guy she's not married to. Who knows how many other guys she's lived with or, or been with. This is the reason why she's an outcast in her community. There's no nice way to put it, right? This, this is the reason why nobody wants anything to do with her. What does Jesus do? Why does he bring this up? It's obvious, right? Why does he bring this up? To humiliate her? To make her feel bad? No. Here's what he's doing. He's nudging her. He's nudging her. He's trying to get her to see, to realize that she has a thirst in her soul and she's been trying to quench that thirst with outward things. In her case, it's with relationships with men. Jesus is telling her, you know, you think that what you really need in life is the love and affection of a man, but I'll tell you this, what you really need is a relationship with God that will heal your heart and satisfy your soul forever. That's what you really need. Now, now I just wanna take a second and let me ask you this. Remember we're talking about encountering Jesus? Let me ask you this. What would Jesus say to you? If you're that person he meets on the well that day, right? What would he say to you? He told her, go and get your husband. He put his finger right on the issue. He pointed out the thing in her life that she was trying to use to quench the thirst in her soul. And he said, it's not working, is it? So let me ask you again, what would Jesus say to you? What is the thing that he would put his finger on in your life? What is the thing that he would point to and say, you're trying to use this to quench the thirst in your soul? It's not going to work. I believe that Jesus wants to do that in all of our lives, even today. This woman, when Jesus puts his finger right on this issue and pinpoints the issue in her life, the issue in her heart, she's just blown away. And she says, sir, I see that you're a prophet. As we go on, I'll, I'll summarize it a little bit for you. She says, sir, I see that you are a prophet. And so what she does then is she asks him 
this big theological question that she's always wondered about, right? She asks him, so now that I see you're a man of God, let me ask you my big question. Us Samaritans, we worship God up on Mount Gerizim, but you Jews worship him on a mountain in Jerusalem. Who's right? And Jesus responds to her and he says, you're missing the point. You're missing the point completely. You're still focused on outward things. I want you to focus on inward things. You're talking about buildings and locations. God is focused on your heart. He says more important than where you worship is the heart that you worship with. And he says God is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And she responds and she says, when the Messiah comes, he will explain all this stuff to us. And then Jesus drops the bomb on her and he says, I who speak to you am he. Now turn with me to the previous chapter. This is John chapter 3. And the other encounter that we see with Jesus. I'm going to read from verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Okay, this is a very different scenario than the previous one. In almost every possible way. The first one took place in Samaria. This one takes place in Jerusalem, the capital of Jewish culture and religion and tradition. The woman in the first story was an outcast. This man, Nicodemus, he is an insider. He is a high-ranking person politically and religiously. Whereas Jesus sought out the woman at the well, this man, Nicodemus, actually is the one who pursues and seeks out Jesus and wants to talk to Jesus. Whereas the woman at the well was surprised that Jesus wasn't embarrassed to be seen talking to her, Nicodemus is actually a little embarrassed to be seen talking to Jesus. Whereas Jesus was gentle in the way that he confronts the woman at the well, uh, Jesus is very direct in the way that he speaks to Nicodemus. He doesn't beat around the bush, right? He doesn't do it in a roundabout way. He just comes right out. First thing he says, Nicodemus, here's your problem. You need to be born again. That's the only way for you to be saved. So Nicodemus is obviously caught off guard by this. He doesn't understand this phrase. What is Jesus talking about being born again? He's spent his whole life living by strict rules. He's a religious man. He's a moral person. He's a good guy. He's respectable. And here comes Jesus and he dares to have the audacity to tell him, you must be born again. Now, this is obviously the place where we get the term born-again Christian, right? Now, you know, you might ask the question, well, what's the difference between a born-again Christian and like a regular Christian, right? Like your run-of-the-mill, everyday, regular Christian, right? Versus a born-again Christian. It's a different version. Sometimes you hear people say things like, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm not one of those born-again types, you know? 
the idea being that to be born again means that you went through some kind of dramatic turnaround in your life, right? Like you were an alcoholic or you used to live in a trash can and you used to shoot drugs into your eyeballs, right? And then you killed the president and you used to throw sacks of kittens and into the river, you know? And then you were a terrorist and then you got really depressed and then you had a dramatic turnaround and you got born again and you turned to Jesus and ever since then you've been off drugs and you haven't killed anybody and you joined a Christian motorcycle gang, you know, that's a big part of it too. And uh, that's what it means, now that's getting born again, right? Now I used to think that I needed to have a testimony like that if I was going to make the claim that I've been born again. So, you know, I kind of tweaked my story a little to make it a little more exciting, right? I didn't, really, I didn't lie, I just kind of, you know, really tuned up those parts that were, you know, pretty spectacular and exciting. The point is that people think, yeah, you know, being born again, that's a good thing uh, for really bad people or maybe for really weak people or for the emotional people or for the, the broken, right? You know, people who need a little bit of structure in their life so they can get on the right track. They need some regimen, right? Or, you know, for example, like if there were a lady who, who had been married like five times and, uh, and she was living with a guy who she wasn't married to, yeah, that's the kind of person who could really afford to get born again, right? To get some religion. Getting born again, that'd probably be good for her, right? She could probably get some direction in her life. She could probably get some focus and some purpose. She could use that authority and that structure in her life. You know, some people need that kind of thing. The problem with this perception of being born again, that it's like what I just said, the problem is it doesn't fit with the context of what Jesus is talking about. The context that Jesus used that term, born again, it's not that that I just talked about. Nicodemus was not an emotional, broken type of person. He wasn't a drug addict. He wasn't a woman who's been living with everybody. The best parallel we have today for Nicodemus's position in our society would be Supreme Court justice and on the side, also a pastor, right? I mean, this is like as good as it gets, right? He's a Supreme Court justice, respectable, and he's also a pastor. He's a religious guy. Not only that, but notice that Nicodemus, he's probably, because he is a, a judge, you know, of the, of the people, he's probably quite a bit older than Jesus, who's 30, 31 years old right now. And Jesus, uh, he, he comes to Jesus and he calls him rabbi, right? This is a man possibly twice his age, twice the age of Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and calls him this term of respect, rabbi, which means teacher. Which tells us on top of everything, Nicodemus is not only all of these great things, but he's also humble and he's also open-minded. He's the whole package. The more I talk about him, the more I like him. He's just a great guy, you know? Successful, disciplined, moral, religious, and open-minded and humble. Again, I like him. What does Jesus say to him? Jesus uses a different metaphor with this man than he does with the outcasts. Rather than talking about his lack of satisfaction, he talks about his self-reliance, okay? You see, being born is not something you have any control over. It's something that happens to you. It's not something you do for yourself. And being born again, essentially that's the picture, it's something that only God can do for you. It's a gift that you cannot earn, you can't work for it, you can't attain it. And Jesus is telling him, Nicodemus, you have a lot of accomplishments, 
but there's one thing that you'll never be able to do for yourself. There's one thing that you can never accomplish on your own. You cannot save yourself. You need the grace of God in order to be saved. That's the only way. None of your good works are going to get you to heaven. The only way for you to get to heaven is for you to cast yourself like a helpless baby on the grace of God. If you, don't, or if you do that, he'll give you new life. But nothing you can do can get you that new life. It's only by grace that you can be saved through faith. Now this would have been shocking for a guy like Nicodemus who's, whose whole life is about his pedigree and his accomplishments. Supreme Court justice type of person. He's, he's, um, you know, he's in this high position. And, And here's this Samaritan woman who's been married five times, currently living with a man who's not her husband. But here's the surprising thing. That Jesus is saying the same thing to them. You guys, you, Supreme Court justice, you, woman who's sleeping with everybody, you're in the same boat before God. You're, you're equally lost. You both need to be born again. You both need to receive this eternal life spiritually. You see, this is the most interesting part of the story. And this is really where we wrap it all together. These two people, two situations that couldn't possibly be more different. Yet Jesus gives them the same diagnosis and he gives them the same prescription. Jesus tells them, you need to be born again. Remember what I said at the beginning? I said, what do the insider and the outcast have in common? Because if these two people, polar opposites, if they have something in common, then that means that we all have something in common. You know, the one is a good person, the other's a bad person, the one's religious and moral, the other one is a sinner. If these two people, on complete opposite ends of the spectrum, if they have the same basic fundamental problem, then that means that all of us have the same basic problem too. And that means that for all of us, the solution is the same. We need to be born again. We need the living water of eternal life to heal our hearts and satisfy our souls. Every single one of us, no matter where you're at in life, no matter whether you're wealthy and successful or if you're homeless and destitute, whether you're a good, upstanding person or whether you're a liar and a cheater, every one of us needs to be born again. You need the eternal, the, the water of eternal life to heal your heart and satisfy your soul. The insider and the outcast, they both have the same problem. They're both looking for salvation in all the wrong places, right? The insider is looking for salvation in his pedigree, in his achievements. The other woman is looking for salvation in temporal things, trying to fill that gap in her life. Jesus is telling them both, you're both looking for a savior in the wrong place. The things that you're looking for, they can only be found in me. I'm the only one who can satisfy your soul and give you eternal life. I'm the only one who can give you that water of eternal life that will heal your heart and quench, your, uh, quench the thirst in your soul permanently. Now I just want to finish by saying this. If you read the rest of chapter 4, here's what happens. The Samaritan woman goes into town and she tells everybody she can find that she has found living water, that she has met the Messiah and she has found eternal life and she invites them to all come with her and meet him for themselves. But Think about this. Do you know why this woman found salvation? Here's why she found salvation, because Jesus was thirsty. 
She found salvation because Jesus was thirsty. He stopped at the well because he was thirsty. Why was Jesus thirsty? Because God became a man. Because the divine son of God, the maker of heaven and earth, emptied himself of his glory, came to this earth, and made himself vulnerable. Someone who would get weary, someone who would get thirsty, and that is what Advent is all about. That is what Advent is all about, that God so loved you that he came to this earth, took on human form so that he could reveal his heart to you, so that he could give his life for you on the cross of Calvary that you might be saved, that you might be born again, that you might drink deep of the water of eternal life. This was not the last time that Jesus would say that he was thirsty. There was one more time. Here in the Gospel of John, towards the end, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, I thirst. Shortly after that, he breathed his last and died. I want you to see this parallel. This is the Gospel. That because Jesus thirsted, your spiritual thirst can be satisfied. Because Jesus died, you can be born again and live forever. That's the message of Advent, and that's the message of the gospel. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your death for us. Lord, thank you that because you died, we can be born again. Lord, we thank you that because you thirsted, because you became one of us, Lord, and gave yourself for us in our place, thank you, Lord, that because you thirsted, we can drink deep of the water of eternal life, and we can live. Lord, I pray for anyone here all of us here, Lord, we all confess that we have searched for saviors. We've searched for salvation in all the wrong places. We have looked for it in temporal things like the woman at the well. We've looked for it in our good works and in our pedigree and our accomplishments like the man who met Jesus at night. Lord, would you help us to see that you are the only savior. The salvation that you offer is the only one. And Lord, may we come to you and ask you to give us that living water which will quench our thirst forever. Lord, we pray that as we remember you come to this earth during this Advent season, Lord, that it would fill our hearts anew with joy and with hope. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.